Well, we're continuing this evening in our series about covenants, covenants, the great promises, contracts throughout the Word of God. And they're so privileges, it's a great privilege for us to examine them and to consider them. The whole Bible is a covenant, the Old Testament, the New Testament, the same word, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And so we praise God this evening again. But God has chosen to deal with each one of us, not in a random way as we thought last time, but in a system of covenants which he makes, and he not only makes, but he keeps. This is surely truth which undergirds the whole of the Christian life. I can use a couple of analogies, one of them now. If you think of the human body, it's flesh, blood, water. But the skeleton is what holds us together. We'd just be a bag, a bag or a puddle on the floor. But with the skeleton, the structure, when we come to what we want to consider tonight, the covenant of redemption This is really the skeleton for all of truth. If you don't understand the covenant of redemption, if you don't think of it often, you will not understand life. You won't understand the word of God. You won't have help. Well, this is so important to us. People, when they hear the word covenants, in my experience, the eyes slightly glaze over and they think, Oh, this is hard, it's too deep, it's profound. But really, we really need to understand that all truth hangs and lives upon the structure of covenants and particularly the covenant of redemption. So three headings tonight, or really three points. The first is just to remind us again, because it's a few weeks since we started this series, what is a covenant? And why is it so important to us? Secondly, I want to define and prove with four very well-known scriptures, not obscure in any way, how the covenant of redemption unfolds and how it just knits together the whole of the word of God. The covenant of redemption, it's like there's a canvas at the beginning of Genesis. And that covenant of redemption There's a few colours put on and as the prophets unfold and as Christ came and then in the epistles we see all the beautiful technicolour and all the texture and everything comes to life in this glorious portrait. So we will remind ourselves of covenants then define and then I want to just briefly apply what does this mean to me how does this affect my life tonight as a believer how might I go out of here differently having considered again and reminded ourselves or considered it fresh for the first time it has been said that the covenant of redemption is like a key to unlock the whole of the castle of God's word when you've got this key you can go inside and the walls are thick they're secure 
And when you're in that castle, well, your faith will be strong. Nobody will come in. The covenant of redemption so much hangs off it. And so we will consider that tonight. So first, just to remind you, what is a covenant? I hope you could explain this to somebody else. If you weren't here last time, we said a covenant, generally speaking, is an agreement made by two parties at least, an undertaking to govern a relationship, a relationship between those two parties. The parties come together and they make binding promises, promises that with all their heart, if they're human covenants, and if they're divine covenants, they are unbreakable. Those promises will be kept. And each of the two parties will do all they can to reach the common goal that is the objective of the covenant. When it comes to divine covenants, of which there's three main ones, these are wonderful, powerful Commitments made by God in relation to us, humanity, and against certain conditions, they are such that we can rely upon. Again, just to remind you, divine covenants give us that framework that we can rely on. They're dependable, rock solid. And since the creation Adam and Eve, of Adam and Eve, the Lord has committed to deal with us in this predictable way. I said last time, divine covenants are only initiated by God, not by us. They're binding, they're living, they're unique, and they're full of blessings. Absolutely full of blessings, but there's also obligations attached to them. Sadly, human covenants, they get broken. They shouldn't. It's my conviction, having reflected on this for the past few months, that we live in a day and age where even believers somewhat reject the idea of a covenant. I remember hearing dear Vernon Hyam speak one day, and he said that when he was growing up in the 40s and 50s and 60s, before his ministry, if somebody asked you to do something on a weeknight meeting or some other occasion, the response would be, no, I can't do that. I'm committed. I'm committed. I'm in a covenant. I'm in a covenant with my God and with my church and nothing but nothing will get in the way unless there's illness or there's necessary duty. I have a relative with somewhat learning difficulties, very significant learning difficulties. One of the traits of his particular, the way he is, is if something comes past, his eyes are into his life, the very next thing is what he wants to do. That's not true with a believer. We are the opposite way round. We make a covenant. We make a commitment to the Lord. And we endeavour that nothing but nothing will come. The word commitment, we're thinking of marriage this week particularly. The word commitment is almost a dirty word. 
Commitment? Why would you want that? What do I get out of it? If I have to enter a commitment, what do I get? That's the language of the world. You have your prenuptial to agree your separation before you've joined. Lots of faith in that. And then you struggle to seek to be independent for the rest of your life, to retain a level of independence. That's the very opposite of the Christian life. The Christian life says, I'm struggling to suppress my independence. And I'm yielding up my life in dependence on God, dependence on my husband or wife, dependence on my church and my church to depend upon me. You see, we've lost the language of covenants. We don't think in this way. We think footloose, fancy free, no obligations, no commitments. What's in this for me? We've taken on the mantra of the world that scorns and scoffs at the idea of a covenant relationship. Well, just a question before we begin with this topic tonight. What was God doing before creation? Have you ever thought of that? The Word of God speaks very often about the counsels of God, the plan of God, before the foundation of the earth. Now, admittedly, this is human and anthropomorphic language. It's not really language that necessarily conveys what God was doing, but it's very clear there was a time, as we say in human terms, in eternity past, before creation, before time began, when God was. And God always was. What was he doing? Well, it helps our understanding, and I think it's biblical to think of it this way, that the Trinity were combining, planning. Of course, they didn't plan in the way that we plan, but they were making a binding covenant together. And that's the covenant that I want us to think about tonight. We thought of two others briefly last time. The covenant of works, which was temporary. Probably very, very temporary. Because it was broken almost as soon as it was given to Adam and Eve. It was a temporal covenant. Nobody since it was given has been saved and will go to heaven on the basis of the covenant of works. It was a broken covenant. It was binding, not broken by God, but because we cannot keep it, it was a broken covenant. That was the first. The second, and we're living under this covenant now, is the covenant of grace. But that covenant is also temporary. The covenant of grace came in after the fall, that was its beginning, and the covenant of grace will end when the final one of those that were given to the Son has been gathered in. It's a covenant for time. So here's the two covenants. But what we want to think about tonight is what sits above, which is the covenant 
of redemption. So let's try to explain this simply. It's important. It's known as pactum salutis. Pact, <coughs> an agreement. Salutis, salvation. That's the Latin. It's the way the theologians think about it. Pactum salutis, the covenant of redemption. And really, as I say, this unlocks the whole of the word of God. Sometimes people say to me as a pastor, I'm reading such and such a book devotionally. Help me. How can I possibly understand this book, this book? And the answer is, if you've got the covenant of redemption, you will be getting additional colour, light, understanding through the revelation of that particular book. Well, that's why we need to study it. Now, we have to admit at the beginning that this covenant, we will never understand its totality. Its nature is so beyond us, it's so profound, that the full comprehension of it is quite beyond humanity. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't seek to deep, dig deep. We can glory, we can marvel in ever deeper ways. But we mustn't presume to be able to penetrate all its depths. This, unlike the covenant of works and the covenant of grace, is an eternal covenant. As we shall see, it was agreed and it's binding before time, during time, as we say, and through all eternity. This is the ultimate covenant, the covenant of redemption. Well, I want to try to prove it from several verses. They're well-known passages. You may not even need to turn to them, but start with Psalm 40. Just to show in the Old Testament, just one verse. I think the covenant of redemption is so clear, but it was only really in 1650, just around the time that the Westminster Confession, the Baptist Confession of Faith was being drawn up, that theologians put this name upon it, the covenant of redemption. Look here in, I, in Psalm 40, Psalm 40, and down in verse 7. This is a messianic psalm. It's speaking of the Saviour, and we can see that in verse 7. Then said I, this is so clearly Christ speaking. Then said I, lo, I come. Christ is coming in fulfilment of the covenant of redemption. In the volume of the book, the <coughs> scroll that was being opened, as it were, it is written of me. There's been prophecy already. And he says, Christ, prophetically, in messianic form, I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yea, thy law is written and is within my heart. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to come. Now for us, he has come. And we can look at this now with New Testament eyes and perhaps we can put it this way. Then said the Lord Jesus, I have come. And as it was written in the book, so 
I have come exactly as it was said of me, I would come as the Redeemer. And I delighted to do the will of God in my life, in my death, in my resurrection. O my God, speaking to the Father, yea, thy law, the agreement that's contained within the first five books, but also throughout, is within my heart. That's a first reference to it. But I want to come down to our scripture reading, John 17. I remember reading this as a teenager when I was on a church holiday. And I read it and reread it and reread it. And I was utterly convinced in one day of what we call Calvinism, the doctrines of grace. I challenge anybody to read this chapter and not see election writ large. And here we see this covenant in New Testament language. Let's just look at the first five verses only. We could go elsewhere. This is Christ. He's lived his life. He's lived it exactly according to the will of the Father, as per Psalm 40. And he's coming to the very end. And he says, he lifts up his eyes to heaven, speaks to his heavenly Father and says, Father, the hour, which hour? The hour that was planned before the foundation of the earth. The hour is come, glorify thy Son. Hang on. Isn't Christ glorious? No. Because in a way that we find very hard to explain, and I'll come back to this to give some light, the Son has laid to one side his glory. And now he's asking that the Son would be glorified again. And once he's glorified, that Christ would also glorify the Father. How will that happen? Well, because he will fulfill the covenant of redemption by going to the cross. Verse 2, As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. You see, Christ has come. He knows what his purpose is, eternal life, to be given out. Who to? To as many as thou hast given him. If you struggle with election, and many do, what does this mean? Does this mean all people? That he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. Well, this is the way I understood it years ago and still do now. If Christ went to the cross and his intention was to save everybody, he failed. Because patently, not everybody comes. But if, as it says in John 17, 2, he went to the cross, and he had in his mind's eye the covenant of redemption agreed before the foundation of the earth with all those that were to be saved, whose names, as many of them, were given to him by the Father, then he fulfilled his mission. The first missionary, Christ, that came from heaven, 
He went to fulfill his mission and he filled it. Can we say 100%? Not one dot missing. This is the high priestly prayer. Christ explaining his work. Look at verse 4. I have glorified thee on the earth. Not himself. He's glorified the Father. How has he done that? I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do in eternity past when the covenant of redemption was agreed as a binding contract and I, the Son, agreed to go into time to live, to die, to rise again. I finished the work. He hadn't quite finished it. He'd finished his earthly life, the work of righteousness. It was still the work on the cross, the work of atonement, And there would be the work in resurrection, the work of authenticating who he was. So it's right, he had finished his work of righteousness. And then verse 5, we move on to another passage. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self. Again, he's saying, He didn't come and didn't live for his own glory. It was for his father's glory. And now it's as though he's saying, I laid my glory aside and I'm asking now that I can have that glory again. That as I rise from the dead, glorify me with thine own self, with the glory which I had before the world was. You see this covenant language that Christ is explaining. He has fulfilled what he was obligated to do. And his reward, can we say that, is that he would be given his glory back again. He submitted himself. He willingly obligated himself and he will be rewarded by fulfilling redemption. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Again, a very familiar passage to turn to, to show the nature of this covenant and how it precedes time. Remember, covenant of works, covenant of grace are temporal. They are between God and man. The covenant of redemption is eternal and it's intertriune. It's between the Godhead. Let's show this here. Verse 3. This is Paul speaking. Blessed. Verse 3, Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Verse 4. Election again. According as he hath chosen us. Who? Well, it's the saints mentioned in verse 1. He's chosen us, the saints, those who've been set apart and sanctified and cleansed. When? How? According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. What assurance this gives. Any child of God that comes to pray, that comes with their struggles in life, 
What comfort do I have tonight? Well, I have this comfort. Because if I'm a child of God, if I believe by faith, if I have truly repented of all sin, well, I will have this assurance that before the very foundation of the world, using human language, that he has chosen us. Why? How? Well, end of the verse, he's chosen us to be holy and without blame before him in love. What glorious truth. That's our standing. I'm a sinner, a vile sinner, but I've come by faith through grace, the covenant of grace, not works I could never earn. And on account of the covenant of redemption, which was before the foundation of the world, I am made holy by Christ. And now my standing before him is I have no blame. Not one sin will be held against me. My failings, my fallen character, my weaknesses, my foolishness, the worst decisions I've taken, any decisions that have been imperfect, no blame. I will stand before him in love. And we have to look at verses 5 and then verse 7. Having predestinated. Oh, I don't like that word. That means we're just robots, doesn't it? Everything's been planned, chosen, and all we're doing is living out robotic lives because everything's been predetermined. Well, you're right, it has been predetermined. But we also have free will. And when we bring free will as close as we can to predestination, we see that the Lord works through the will to incline the will so that all those that he's chosen before the foundation of the earth will hear his voice and will gladly, willingly come to him. Here's the language, verse 5. Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children, we see our heavenly Father and we say, I don't want to rule my life anymore. I want to be in his family, a child of God, adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself. Who does it? Not me. I don't do the choosing. Christ has chosen me. I don't know why. He should have chosen so many others, but it was never on merit. And so, in the covenant of redemption, all those that the Father chose before the foundation of the earth then hear his voice. And they're adopted. Adopted. Look at the language of verse 6. They're accepted. And the language of verse 7. They're redeemed. And they're forgiven. How? According to the riches of his grace. The covenant of grace in time is what enacts the covenant of redemption in eternity. Let me show you just one more. Philippians in chapter 2. This is, again, so well known. I've chosen well-known passages so that nobody can accuse me of trying to strain. 
this truth, but it's everywhere. Once you start looking at it, it's like the green grass. It's everywhere. Philippians chapter 2. Let this mind, verse 5, be in you, which was also in Christ. It was in Christ before he came to earth. Here we go. Here's the incarnation. Verse 6. Who? Christ. Being in the form of God, the fashion, the shape, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. He was, he is, he always will be. He never wasn't. But made himself of no reputation and took upon the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of man. Now there's a problem here. The problem is known as the kenotic theory, kenosis. And what people have argued wrongly it's affected many good churches over the last hundred years, is that Christ ceased to be divine. That's not what this teaches. He did give up aspects of his divinity willingly in order to take on a human form. But he was divine. Now let me try and explain this. Let's think of these aspects and see if you agree. He gave up his favourable relationship to the law. What do I mean by that? We have a relationship to the law. We break it, we're guilty. Christ didn't break it, ever. But he became sin for us. He took on guilt in his death. And so we say he became sin and he took the guilt of his people, even though he did not sin. So in that sense, he laid aside that relationship he once had with the law. He did not sin. Secondly, He gave up his riches. I'm going to close with a hymn that mentions this. There's a scripture that says, For your sake he became poor. All his glory, riches laid aside. I'm sure that's so clear. He gave up his heavenly glory. It's mentioned in John 17, 4. We looked at it, the glory that he had with the Father. He said, No, I'm willing to surrender it for a time. But then I'll take it again. He's still divine. But he's laid aside his riches, his glory, his relationship to the law so that he can bear our guilt. And there's one more and it's mentioned here. He had authority. He had authority to be independent. But he decided that he would submit himself to the will of the Father. By becoming a servant. Verse 8. He humbled himself. And became obedient. Unto death. Verse 7. He made himself of no reputation. And took on the form of a servant. Servants don't have authority. They've surrendered it. Or they never had it. In Christ's way. He put it to one side. So that's how we explain. How Christ obeyed the covenant. 
surrendered certain things, but still remained divine, even through his earthly sojourn. This is what Calvin says. It was the Son of God himself who emptied himself, though he did it only with reference to his human nature, which he voluntarily took upon himself. He was willing. That's what this passage in Philippians 2 speaks about. He willingly did these things. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ. Well, just as we close, another great theologian, Charles Hodge, explained it this way. He said, God the Father gave to God the Son eight promises. He promised to the Son, if you will go to earth, this is human language, you will form a purified church and that church will be for yourself. There was a blessing in this covenant for Christ. Secondly, the Son would receive the Holy Spirit without measure. He did. Remember when the the dove came down. Thirdly, the Spirit would be ever-present to support him in his life and in his ministry. Fourthly, the Spirit would deliver him from death and exalt him at the right hand of the Father. Fifthly, he would have the Holy Spirit to give to whom he willed all who are saved have the Holy Spirit. Don't believe that myth that there are Holy Spirit Christians and there are non-Holy Spirit Christians. Every child of God has the Holy Spirit. Sixthly, Hodge says, all that the Father gave to him, John 17, would come to him and none would be lost. Seventhly, multitudes. Don't ever think of the elect as a small, finite number. It's, in our minds, an almost infinite number. Yes, it's specific. We don't know who, but the Lord knows. It's a vast, vast number. Astonishing. Did you know that there's more people alive today than have ever lived? Isn't that an astonishing fact? We don't know how many across The population of the world today are children of God or who will be. But we know it's a vast, vast number. And finally, Hodge says, Christ would see, this was the promise given to him, he would see of the travail of his soul, his labour, the sweat, the blood, the travail of his soul. And he would be satisfied. You see, in this covenant, it's not one way. It's not just us that has the blessing, all we do. But Christ would be given the glory. He would be satisfied with the travail of his soul, as it says in the Psalms. And he would be given his glory again. Well, what does this mean, very briefly, to us? What supreme confidence we can have in God's eternal plan. Do you know, sometimes people look at the word of God and they use it like a lucky book. 
haphazard, almost as though God was ad-libbing, moving to plan B, plan C. There is no plan B. There is only the covenant of redemption. That's plan A, B and C. Well, that gives us such confidence. Any doubts? When you come to this truth, the covenant of redemption, the Lord going into time, saving his people, finishing the work, we have no doubts. We are secure. And if we believed in his word, it never changes. Oh, it should fix in our minds ever greater love for Christ, that he should lay down his life. We should lay down so many of our rights and privileges. What are they? Human rights? Yes, it's right that people shouldn't be persecuted and discriminated against. That's right. But human rights as believers? The only right I have is that I should be punished for my sin. And Christ has taken that punishment for me. So logically I have no rights left. I surrender all at the throne of Christ. I should want to serve him if Christ came to serve. Shouldn't I serve? Shouldn't that be my attitude? I'm committed. I'm dedicated. I'm in a covenant relationship, preferably many of them. A bond has been made. and We will do our very best not to break it, to serve the whole of this covenant, said Thomas Brooks, is a bundle of promises, the covenant of redemption. It's like a big bundle of promises. You can keep pulling them out because this is God speaking to us in a way that we can depend utterly upon. Well, may the Lord help us to understand and apply these things.